Merkel Media. This was all circulating around the base that a giant had been killed, but no one was supposed to talk about it. I saw three long bony fingers reach up underneath the door, curl up to grab it, and then disappear. When he came over to me, dude, he slithered over to me. And this giant comes out of the cave and they're all frozen. And he starts running and firing at this giant. Well, the giant moves, he's got a spear in one hand and he's running really fast and spears Dan and holds him up like this. Somebody yells, shoot him in the face, shoot him in the face. They basically decapitate him. Got closer, got closer, got closer. When he got about 15 yards away from me, I raised that 12 gauge and I blowed his head off. I feel something pulling at my leg. And I look over and there are two small gray entities pulling at me. And they're literally, I'm getting pulled off the bed. I reached my hand into this bush and I touch air. Couldn't breathe and I couldn't move because I know I'm seeing a monster. Welcome to the show, everybody. You're listening to The Confessionals. I'm your host, Tony Merkel. Thanks for being here. If you have a crazy, wild experience you want to share with me on the show, go ahead and shoot me an email. My email address is theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. That's theconfessionals at theconfessionalspodcast.com. Or go to the website, theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the contact section. You can reach me that way as well. Either way works for me. Just get a hold of me. If you want to hear more shows on a weekly basis, go to theconfessionalspodcast.com. Hit the join button and become a member today. That gives you access to all all the membership content on the website and the app that includes the Thursday member shows, the Tuesday shows ad free and the overtime segments from the Tuesday shows all right there waiting for you as members. So go ahead and check that out if you're interested. Also friends, check out the preparewiththeconfessionals.com. That's preparewiththeconfessionals.com. Get yourself emergency supply food that will last you up to 25 years on the shelf. I don't think you're going to need it 25 years from now, but just in case there is no emergency between now and then, you are still good to go at preparewiththeconfessionals.com. And before we get to this week's guest on the show, let's talk about the first annual Dogman slash Cryptid Conference right there in Paris, Tennessee. It is going to be a fantastic venue for you to check out if you are into all things Dogman and Cryptids. There's going to be some great speakers there, including Nick Valente, Jody Cook, Steve Stockton, Ron Murray. Murphy, Nick Redfern, Tony Merkel, Josh Turner. Uh, the list goes on and on, my friends. And it's going to be hosted by Ken Gearhart. So if you want to go and meet all these speakers and have a good time in Paris, Tennessee, August 13th, you're going to want to go in the description of this episode, hit the link for the tickets and get your tickets today before they are gone, my friends. Okay, today we got a great in-studio guest coming up. We have Alexander Petikoff in studio with us, the Bigfoot Hunter. He actually has a series on YouTube called Bigfoot Beyond the Trail Through Small Town Monsters. He is legit, and he comes on to talk about all things Bigfoot, including how he got into hunting Bigfoot, some of the other things that he 
thinks about at night that keeps him awake and what would happen if he had mind speak out in the woods after having a Bigfoot encounter. Would he admit it? Would he talk about it? We get into all that kind of conversation on this episode. Let's get to Alexander Petikov right now. All right, we want to welcome Alex Xander to the show. Alexander, Alex, listen, what? I wanted to talk to you about something before we even get going here. <laughs> How do you pronounce your last name? Petikov. Petikov? Yeah, it's, 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 okay. it can be a little tricky. What but... is that, Spanish? Yes, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Straight from Spain, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I, I was actually looking at your online profiles and stuff, and... Uh, on your Instagram, because I'm only on Instagram. Right. I mean, I'm on other platforms, but I only hang out on Instagram. Yeah, Instagram's fun. And uh, your profile says Alex. And then yes. in the videos, you were saying Alexander. So that's why I stumbled there, because I was like, we got Alex Xander on yeah, the show. <laughs> it, it, it can be confusing. Yeah, I, a lot of people struggle with the Alexander, because the way it's spelled, yeah, okay. it's not what they're used to. So I just go with Alex, because, I mean, people call me Alec. I've heard Alexandra before. I'm like, how did you misplace the letters? That's really? like, it may be a different issue there, but yeah. So I just stick with Alex. So okay. that's just the easy way to do it. And yeah, avoids I, confusion. I, I, I tend to shorten people's names to begin with. So it's one of those things where, you know, like I, I'm going to call you Alex anyways. Sure. So, <laughs> that, that works. I was, I, I'm also known for butchering intros. Uh, actually last week's show, I butchered uh, our guest's last name and I actually took that out because I was, I was so embarrassed by it. No, I actually no. took it out, <laughs> <laughs> but I messed stuff up all the time. But anyways, uh, we, we have Alexander here, Alex, whoever you want to call him. Uh, and let's just tell, start off with telling people who you are and uh, what you're all about and stuff. Where can they find you online? Because obviously you're you're somebody notable. That's why you're here in person. Yeah, of course, right? No, my He's na- special, guys. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, we can make it work. Yeah, so um, basically my kind of spiel is I'm a, a filmmaker first and then a cryptozoology researcher. So uh, I've been into all sorts of different cryptids over the years, uh, mostly Bigfoot now. Uh, people probably would see me in the Small Town Monsters series Beyond the Trail on YouTube, as well as some of the other Small Town Monster, uh, Small Town Monsters feature films about other cryptids, but usually the Bigfoot stuff. So mostly Bigfoot stuff nowadays, but I've done stuff on Mystery Big Cats and the Lake Champlain Monster mm-hmm. and other stuff as well. So you kind of go all over the place, but right now you're doing a lot of Bigfoot. Yeah. Well, the thing is I like the, what I like about the Bigfoot topic is whenever I travel somewhere, especially in North America, I mean, chances are most places you go, there's going to be a local Bigfoot story or a variant, yeah. whether it's the skunk ape or the Mogollon monster or the wood devil, you know, wherever you go. Whereas if you're looking into something like the Lake Champlain monster, it's, it's just completely geographically stuck to one area. It's, <laughs> it's a lake, right? Right. So Bigfoot's cool because it's open-ended. I can always put it down and then come back to it if I'm in another area. Mm. That's what I like about Bigfoot. But we've been focusing pretty heavily on Bigfoot now, especially with Beyond the Trail, just because of, well, I should say Bigfoot Beyond the Trail. We've kind of amended that to include the Bigfoot, just because uh, it's it's a combination of a lot of stuff that I'm into in terms of being out in the woods, being in some of these really remote places. We do a little bit of, you know, kind of the survivalist sort of stuff, a little bit of bushcraft, and then that research out in the field. And so that's that's why I kind of like going back to Bigfoot because as, as fun as it is to be out on a lake or, you know, a seacoast somewhere looking for sea monsters or something, it's just not as a, a doable, I think, on a, on a repeatable scale as Bigfooting is where you can really just take yeah. a pack and go off into the woods, go into the Smoky Mountains nearby and just go for a few days and come out. You don't really need 
a lot of specialized kind of equipment like a big boat or some sort of an expedition vehicle. You, anyone could really sort of do it. That's what I kind of like about it. You know, uh, that's kind of how I am too, in the sense that, so we're, we're doing these films and everything, but also, uh, me and Jack like doing these kind of like action vloggy kind of things. So it's like, we're yes. like, like people who watch our film, like I'm not the one producing that guys. Like, like I have no idea what I'm doing with Adobe and all that stuff. Uh, that's why like, you know, me and Jack, if you see me and Jack produce something, it's real, like, you know, it's vloggy, it's YouTubey, you know? And, um, we, him and I try to go to places though that have a lot of different types of lore. Right. That way, we're not boxed into one thing. Sure. Uh, and and so you know, like we'll go to like we went to the Michaux State Forest, and we went because there's a specific location we knew we could get to that had a story. It was an old World War II prisoner of war camp. Nazis killed Nazis there. Great storyline. Let's go. But also. They have Bigfoot sightings in this forest. Right. They have Dogman sighting in this forest. It's a haunted forest. So there's so much there that we went with, we know we can get to the camp and we can do a whole thing about the camp, but we can also have all this other stuff as underlying things. If something else pops off, we can run with it, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so that's kind of how we did things with that and stuff. So I totally understand that. Um, now you, you're going out, you're looking for Bigfoot, all that stuff. Uh, I'm assuming you didn't wake up one day when you were like four years old and say, I'm going to be a Bigfoot hunter one day, you know, like, or maybe you did. I don't know. Like I have a four-year-old at home and he, he has the audacity to tell me Bigfoot's not real. My four-year-old, my four-year-old, like he hasn't like, seen the evidence, man. Son, son, like you're four. Yeah. Just listen to what I tell you. Okay. You know? So like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you grew up just wanting to hunt Bigfoot. Where, where did this all start for you? Because I mean, you were talking about the big cats and all yeah. that stuff. What, what? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Uh, it's a kid of the nineties. I was just really into, uh, uh, dinosaurs and nature and all that kind of stuff. And I was told the story of the Yeti in the Himalayas when I was a kid on a family ski trip. And, you know, that story sort of cemented in this sort of mystique look I, you know, I remember looking up at these mountain peaks and thinking wow there could be something up there hiding mm. uh, there's all these stories and that sort of thing and then I started diving into the documentary side of it and I was just consuming anything I could on that topic a lot of the old school shows and in search of and Animal X uh, Monster Quest uh, that was kind of later on um, X-Files of course you know non sort of documentary shows so there was a lot and I think that influenced a little bit of me wanting to become a filmmaker so I, I initially started getting more into film not on the cryptid side of things. I wanted to do other types of films and that sort of thing and study communication. So that was kind of all within my alley. I really liked the documentary filmmaking format mm. and what you could do with it. And it wasn't until actually going to uh, Loch Ness after I got out of school, I was, you know, over in Europe for a little bit and I went to Loch Ness. It was kind of like a bucket list item, go to Loch Ness. You know, it's one of the most famous cryptid creatures in the world, Nessie. And I had a new cam Canon camera that I picked up and I was like, hey, I'm just going to interview some people, shoot some shots and see what happens. And then I was like, well, you know what? There's all these cryptid documentaries that I've loved growing up on and watching. Why don't I just do my own? And then I wanted to do a feature film on Bigfoot. And I realized that the topic was just so broad. I had kind of had, uh, you know, armchair researcher days where I was really into it in high school and that sort of thing. And then I would, you know, life happens, you kind of lose interest, you come back to it sort of thing. And, and when I came back to the Bigfoot topic, I realized how big it had gotten and that it was sort of that finding Bigfoot era where the the Bigfoot topic was really blowing up. Finding Bigfoot really put Bigfoot, I think, outside of the Pacific Northwest and places like Ohio and Florida, where previously those were the only areas where you really thought Bigfoot's there, right? 
Nobody thought, well, there could be Bigfoot in New Hampshire, like in my state or in Maine or uh, Idaho or all these other places where there may be some stories, but nothing is mainstream. So in that post-finding Bigfoot sort of climate, there was much more of a renewed interest in Bigfoot just nationwide. So I realized this is probably going to be more than a, a feature film. I can do, you know, one documentary just about one researcher I know in New Hampshire. Then I could do another one about Bluff Creek or whatever. So I started just doing open-ended kind of documentaries, putting them on YouTube and Eventually uh, linked up with Seth Breedlove and Small Town Monsters, and I did a Champ miniseries about the Lake Champlain monster, uh, kind of hearkening back to the Loch Ness um, interest that I had just because I really like the lake monster stories. They're very fascinating, and I think Lake Champlain, too, as a lake, is very mysterious. And there's a lot of other weird stories with the lake itself, but this Champ myth uh, just seemed more credible in a lot of ways to even Loch Ness. I kind of, after after looking into Loch Ness, I kind of was more skeptical of it, actually. I thought, well, maybe if there was something, maybe it's extinct or maybe it's not there anymore. Just that that lake is not as conducive biologically as, as a place like Lake Champlain. It was 120 miles long, you know, 12 miles wide, 420 feet at the deepest with under underground, underwater caves, and uh, one of the most biodiverse lakes in North America in terms of fish really? species. Yeah. And wow. it used to be part of the ocean. And it, and a lot of the, the fish species in there are you know, prehistoric looking fish that essentially adapted from salt water. I mean, you've got landlocked salmon in the lake and other other animals that you normally see in uh, uh, you know marine environments. Yeah. So the theory is maybe this Lake Champlain creature, if if it exists, is some sort of descendant. You know, and and the the size descriptions were only you know ten to twenty feet long, which is much more realistic than you know thirty forty. 50 foot long monster, you know, in any confined body of water, you know, 15 feet, that's, you've got crocodiles uh, that are reported on that length, Mm -hmm. as well as great white sharks can get up to 20 feet long. I mean, that's not that preposterous. So uh, that, that was really interesting. And I got to do a mini series on that. And then from there, like I said, I, I did, uh, you know, Bigfoot here and there, I would kind of jump back and forth in the Bigfoot topic. And I've, I've just done that ever since in between doing other things as well. Mm. So, uh, Loch Ness, I, I kind of envy you because I have never been there. It's the place that I always wanted to go to. It's what, for me, launched me into anything like this. I uh, was a kid and I was like, Loch Ness Monster. Holy crap, that sounds amazing, you know? And uh, we were going to go hunt a Loch Ness Monster when I was a kid. But um, So when it comes to these creatures, let's just call them that, whatever they are, right? We can get it, we can go down the rabbit hole for yeah, sure. for sure. Uh, do you feel, and maybe this is the leading question into the rabbit hole, I don't know. Do you feel like, for instance, what you just described in Champlain sounds very uh, natural? It yeah. just seems like you know it, it's it's undocumented. It's it's maybe not seen very often, but there's a perfectly natural explanation. Do you think that that's the way it is for a lot of or all of these cryptids, or do you think when you look at like Bigfoot or Dogman or something like that, like I don't even know if you believe in Dogman, but like it's this idea, like do you think like there's something mysterious about these, like they don't belong, that there's something other, they're not just a normal natural creature out in the woods kind of thing. How do you approach the topics? I think it's almost a spectrum. I mean, if we're talking about kind of the cryptid label, I think there's a spectrum. And on one side, you have out of place animals or things like the thylacine, you know, the Tasmanian tiger, which you know, there's nothing kind of supernatural reported about that. It's just an animal that's thought to be extinct that people are still seeing. Then the mountain lion topic, you know, you have the entire eastern United States where mountain lions were extirpated, essentially made extinct. Yeah. Their range is now, you know, the Rocky Mountains and westward. Those animals moving back, you know, that's 
that is on one spectrum where it's totally biological. Then the other extreme of the spectrum is stuff like Mothman and maybe the Flatwoods monster, things that to me at least seem more connected with supernatural or uh, paranormal, even extraterrestrial, stuff like Mothman. There's a lot of UFO sightings and other things associated. So I don't know if I would consider that an animal. I mean, a lot of people do call that a cryptid, right? It's Mm -hmm. just kind of a part of in that kind of wheelhouse. So you have that on the other spectrum and that leads you into the whole kind of paranormal conversations. And then you have stuff in the middle. And I think Bigfoot to me is more in the middle because a lot of what I've seen personally and stories I've heard in the vast majority of eyewitness encounters that I've been told about or, you know, been privy to to hear people's encounters, it's acting in a way that seems biological. There's nothing weird, but there's a minority reports, maybe 25% or less, at least from what I've seen, where it seems like there's other strange things involved. Maybe there's UFOs involved, there's orbs, there's other weird things. So uh, in the past, a lot of researchers have completely written that off if it didn't fit sort of a flesh and blood agenda. Um, I, I, I personally don't like to do that. I mean, I may not necessarily believe it's paranormal, but these people have had legitimate experiences. I've been told by very credible folks that, you know, saw an orb and then had, you know, a rock get thrown at the screen in front of their face Mm -hmm. in conjunction with sort of Bigfoot activity. So I think Bigfoot is one of those things that, you know, while I do lean to it being more flesh and blood, I think it it can lean either way. That's why it's more in the middle, whereas it's not solely on that biological spectrum, at least from, like I said, just uh, majority reports do seem to lean that way. And then you have other cryptids that might fit in there. Something like the Lake Champlain monster seems like it fits more squarely in the biological section. Yeah, Um, Loch Ness, Maybe a little bit, maybe twenty five percent, you know, into the sort of between Bigfoot and the and the completely natural spectrum uh, side of the spectrum, because there's this whole story of Aleister Crowley and a lot of the weird stuff going on, and people have talked about other weird stuff at Loch Ness. Is that necessarily connected to Nessie? I don't know, but uh, it's. I think the spectrum it can move. You could move stuff down. You can move stuff along. But that's just the way I kind of view the cryptid topic, so to speak. And like I said, a lot of that stuff on the other extreme of the spectrum not isn't even necessarily cryptid you know you're you're not looking for mothman is not you know a biological entity that you're really looking for it's clearly connected with other sort of strange things that were going on in that time period in west virginia Mm. so if you so the way you feel about bigfoot where you're kind of like in the middle with it and stuff um so there's people out there and i know you know this but we're just talking yeah uh there's people out there that are die hard uh it's something not natural it's interdimensional there's people that are die hard the opposite direction right yeah now you kind of you view it in the middle and so you probably lie in the middle on it you can go both ways i'm sure i'm assuming if you had an experience you're now you're a bigfoot hunter you're good like, i just i don't know if that's disrespectful to say but i'm just saying yeah it's fine <laughs> alex is a bigfoot hunter he's with small town monsters he's speaking at the smoking you call me a bigfoot hunter <laughs> <laughs> like he's he's speaking at the smoking mountain bigfoot conference this weekend and uh by the time people hear this it was the previous weekend but um so say you're out in the woods and you have a bigfoot encounter like you you're like it's right there i'm looking at it and at the same time, I'm hearing a voice in my head. If you had an experience like that, would you talk about it? Or 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 do you think you would have a hard time talking about it because you're like, man, because of the peer pressure. Like you and I yeah. were talking about an upcoming show that I have coming where like I have some serious right. uh, 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 reservations on airing it just because I know there's going to be people out there that are going to be like, I can't believe you would you know, ha- ha- talk about this and all that stuff, you know? And so like, it's that, it's that kind of attitude. Do you yeah. feel like uh, going into that ex- or coming out of that experience, 
Do you think that you would have reservations to admitting that experience publicly? Probably. I think just in general, disregarding even the voice being heard, just seeing a Bigfoot in general, I would probably... Because I am somebody that's, you know, I I like to look for Bigfoot. I'm out in the woods and, you know, we're looking for Bigfoot evidence. We're talking to people who have, who have had encounters. I think that automatically makes people skeptical. Oh, they had a Bigfoot encounter. Of course, you're looking for Bigfoot, mm-hmm. which is really weird if you think about it. It's like, well, we're out there looking, you know, we, we want to see it. Like mm-hmm. we would like to get some sort of evidence to be able to document it. But I think as somebody in that position, because you know, the burden of proof is essentially on me to prove what I saw. And if I have nothing but a story, then just like every eyewitness essentially gets disregarded uh, by the mainstream or by uh, more skeptical leaning folks, which, you know, I'm fine with skepticism. I think we need it in terms of these, you know, kind of fantastical stories. I would try to vet myself in the sense that I would put myself up against people who don't have an emotional attachment to my encounter. So, you know, maybe myself and my friend saw it. We're both emotionally invested in that encounter. And, a lot of times what happens is when people have either evidence or things they've encountered and somebody counters it with a different viewpoint that maybe not aggressively, they're just coming at it from, well, did you think about what What if it could have been this? They get aggressive and, and that's just an emotional response because mm-hmm. we're invested in what happened. I would like to try to be as sober-minded as possible and have people sort of vet and ask me questions about to make sure I really saw what I saw, that it wasn't me just, you know, in this pursuit, really projecting something or, or wanting to see something so bad that that glimpse of a bear really quick became a Bigfoot. You know, if it's something completely unobstructed where you're like, there's no doubt of what it was, I'd like to be able to at least talk to some folks who are not at all invested in the encounter and have them not, I don't want to say interrogate, but um, I've had other other folks, other eyewitnesses who have described going through this kind of process where because they don't want to be seen as crazy, they're not into the Bigfoot topic. They're not a researcher publicly. They they have so much trouble talking about it because people think they're a joke. Oh, but you, you saw a Bigfoot. Look at this lunatic. It may have been a traumatic experience. A yeah. lot of times it is. You have PTSD, I mean, with some of these encounters. So, But like I said, as a researcher, I think I would need to have extra scrutiny cast upon me simply because of that. And, and if there was some sort of a you know, mind speak or an, another kind of um, component to just see physically seeing of Sasquatch, I would also then have to you know question myself and my sanity essentially be, well, is it me? you know, is something going on neurologically? I don't know. I, so that's a really good question because I, I don't really know how I would address that aside from putting myself up against, I think, a gauntlet of, um, you know, folks that are just asking tough questions because I think t- tough questions need to be asked if you're making a big claim like that. Yeah, you have to be uh, surrounded by people who are willing to ask those tough questions, yes. you know, because uh, I, I mean, even for me, uh, I, I've gotten better with this over the years. Uh, I mean, people are never going to hear on this show me debating my guests. You're never going to hear right. me say, well, you're wrong and here's why, you know. Uh, but in the early days, I was nervous to ask certain questions that were like people in the early days would say, you always ask the questions that I'm thinking. I'm like, that's great. But I don't feel like I asked the questions that I, I'm thinking because I hold back because I don't want to offend somebody. I don't right. want them being like, oh, this guy's just thinking I'm crazy. No, I'm just being curious, you know? And, yeah. And as time's going on, I've gotten better with that where now I'm just like, listen, I think I'm almost 500 episodes in. People know my heart. They know, uh, they, I, I'm listen, we're just having a conversation here. Right. And right. so I ask questions and stuff. But I think in, in, if you were to have that kind of experience, I think it would, be, it would you'd, you personally, for your own sanity and judgment, would have to trust the people you have around you, yeah. that they're going to actually ask you questions 
that might be a little uncomfortable. That's that's exactly kind of my point. It's it's more so for myself because, like I said, I am putting myself in this position where I'm actively looking for Bigfoot related things out in the woods. I want to be able to kind of show myself, well, okay, I actually did see what I saw, or especially if I have another person with me. We can corroborate. We can independently go up against this sort of, uh, you know, questioning and, and see how our responses differ because you got to take into account, you know, you're out there in the bush, adrenaline's pumping, you know, you get tunnel vision, things may happen. I mean, in all kinds of uh, high intense, high stress moments where something happens like that, I mean, it, it, you would probably misremember details of seeing a mountain lion or, or a bear out there in the woods, you know, yeah. where you're kind of in that fight or flight, let alone something that isn't supposed to exist. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, um, I don't know, just for myself, like you said, I think you summed it up pretty good. I would, I would just be trying to kind of put myself up against that question. I think that's a similar approach I take to evidence too. I mean, we have a lot of things that we've had happen or sounds that we've heard, things we've found out in the woods. And I think one of the most important things, especially in, in the Bigfoot kind of world is because there is so much bogus stuff out there. There's a lot of evidence that is bunk, unfortunately. Heresy. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, I always like to send it to people that I know and I trust that they can give me an opinion that I know they're not just telling me this because they're my friend and they're Mm -hmm. like, oh, well, you know, it's a bear, but maybe it's a big, no, I want them to be, well, it's, it's absolutely a bear that you got there. That hair sample is bear. Okay, perfect. I'll thank you. Send it to the next person. So you have people who are not, again, invested emotionally in that piece of evidence analyzing it. I think that's that's what we need more of. We yeah. need, especially as someone who might be in the Bigfoot community, they're probably kind of used to this sort of stuff, but even reaching out to people who aren't into it, you know, without leading, hey, I, I got Bigfoot audio in the woods. Can you tell me what this is? You know, email a biologist, say, what do you think this is? And just to see kind of what their response is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think it's, you're, it's you're, you're kind of vetting your evidence and you're putting it up to, um, I don't want to say peer review. It kind of is, but it's not like a formal journalistic peer review. You're basically just putting it out there and getting feelers and, and what people are thinking about it because you know, sometimes you can be totally wrong. And if you can admit it, that's great. I mean, we have one example when we were in Colorado last summer, we were on a property that's had a pretty extensive history of what I think is legitimate Sasquatch activity. I mean, they had a lot of really weird stuff happening, rural you know, property owners, and they didn't really know what to make of it. Well, they had found this strange hair sample and a clump of them in, in kind of up on a um, barbed wire fence. And they'd given us a sample of it. And we were like, oh, wow, this looks pretty interesting. You know, initially through photos to, to some people, they said, that looks pretty promising. So we send it off to somebody who does, you know, kind of microscopic analysis. And it came back as a uh, raccoon hair, which is obviously, you know, kind of disappointing, but yeah. that, that's fine because it, we're able to then say, well, hey, look, we got alleged evidence that turned out to be raccoon. And we can say this is all part of the process. If you get something that's truly curious, unknown primate or just human-like or something along those lines, that's cool too. But I think just the transparency of being able to say, well, yes, I think there was legitimate Sasquatch activity going on in that property, but we have to be careful of just because something may look interesting and it's going on with these other circumstances, it might not be related to that. So I think it's just about, you know, kind of being uh, aware of those sorts of things. And that's the sort of approach that we really strive to take. And and I personally like to, and I think we just need a little bit more of that because uh, the outside world is not too kind to uh, a lot of what's going on in the Bigfoot world. And, you know, maybe justifiably so in some cases, but um, I just think we need a little bit more of that kind of scrutiny and willing, the willingness to put your stuff out there uh, you know, without fear of ridicule and being able to get, you know, unbiased opinions. You know, it's being honest with yourself and it's, it's really comes down to the heart of the individual on the topic. So, uh, you small town monster guys, the people who are doing this, it seems like you guys, 
you're not interested in uh in in fairy tales listen we just want the truth whatever the truth is we're, we want to accept that uh and and that's kind of like i think the best pay, way to go about it with this kind of stuff like you know you like you're not gonna get bigfoot on video every time you go out yeah. and, and 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 there's that peer pressure especially uh the, the, the content creators that are strictly YouTubers type stuff, they're like, oh, Bigfoot in this video, 40 minutes, you know, boom, put it up on the channel and get the views. And, and it's just like, you guys are trying to be more honest with yourself and being honest and you just want the truth. And I, I totally get that. I mean, I, there, there was, uh, uh, years ago, there was a similar situation that happened in the podcast community where, um, it, the, the, on the back end of things, they they count stats a certain way. These podcast companies, and then the the industry as it got older, it got more advanced technology wise, and there was new ways of doing things. And so they they switched the the way they count people's downloads and became much more uh, strict right. and authentic and real and true. Uh, and a lot of people, everybody, saw their numbers go down. And there was a good handful of podcasters like, oh, what's going on? They're messing with the algorithms and they're right. they're killing my show. No, nothing's changed with your show, except for what you see is more of a real true number hmm. of what's the reflection of your show. And you should be excited about that because you know exactly you, what your foundation is and where to build from. Right. And, and so it, it, there was, there's that, 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 that difference in mentality where it's like people like me who are just like, cool, it is what it is. This is the information. This is what I want. Now we build just like you guys with the video stuff. And there's other people who's like, I just want the fantastical, you know? <laughs> yes. And, and that's the fine line, I think, between, you know, creating something entertaining, but also I, I, I try to be educational. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you can spend time out in the woods and just learn so much about the woods and how it works. And, oh, this plant does that. Or, oh, this area has these types of animals and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, people love the stories, you know, and, and I, I love them too. I mean, who doesn't like a good Bigfoot yeah. encounter? You know, the vast majority of Bigfoot eyewitnesses or any sort of cryptid eyewitness, they have no other secondary evidence to follow up on that usually mo most of the time they're they're not expecting for this to happen you know they're camping they're they're just driving on a country road you know they're doing normal things and they have this seemingly fantastical thing happen so all they have is that anecdotal story and a lot of people say well that doesn't constitute evidence i mean sure it might not but once you start putting you know if you, especially if you're able to vet sightings and figure out which ones are you know absolutely legit because there are people that make stuff up but yeah i don't think that's that's the vast majority of people are not just yeah. pulling our legs i mean there's tons of people who don't really want to be out publicly with this kind of stuff either but once you start plotting some of these sightings and maybe you'll start seeing patterns maybe you can uh, you know let's say there's a fresh sighting you can go out and find you know secondary evidence maybe mm. tracks or hairs something that helps you know corroborate that sort of story uh, that's happened in other, you know, topics and in, in terms of wildlife research as well with other other species. So I think that's something we can take from, you know, I don't want to say legitimate science, but you know, uh, biology, you know, wildlife research, and 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 use it in Bigfoot research. Another one, and actually, that's the shirt I'm wearing is my buddy um Scott. He runs the Bigfoot Mapping Project. Uh, you know, he's a he's a GIS guy. He does mapping stuff for work, and that's all he kind of does. But he's basically taking the approach that a lot of conservation agencies and um you know nonprofits and and groups that study like mountain lions or study different types of animals they use certain data points and map it all out to get an idea of where animals might be moving around. And so you're essentially trying to take that approach and apply it to Bigfoot. You know, obviously most of what we have to, to deal with in the Bigfoot subject is eyewitness stories. We don't have a lot of other stuff. Yeah. There are tons of casts, tons of hair, tons of audio, a lot of video and, 
and photos and a lot of them are dubious, but you know, you've got a handful of that sort of stuff, but the over like 90% of what we have is eyewitness encounters. So if you can start plotting those out and using them and, and it's not, a, you know, there, there's been Bigfoot sighting maps that have been done in the past, but I think, you know, a parallel we've used is in Florida, you have a species of a mountain lion. Well, it's not, a, it's a kind of a subspecies of mountain lion called the Florida Panther. I mean, the, the previously to their extinction on the Eastern seaboard, uh, mountain lions were everywhere essentially. And Florida, no different. They were one of the most adapted species in North America. They were living in swamps of Florida to the deserts of the Southwest, the Appalachian Mountains to the Rocky Mountains and everything in between. They were all over the place. And one of the populations that still exists in the East of the few is the Florida Panther. And there's maybe three to 500 estimates are kind of off, but essentially what the Florida Wildlife Commission does is they use crowdsourced data about sightings. People get a trail camera photo in their backyard. They find a track. They see one crossing the road in the national park or they're just outside of town and they see one. They can submit that. Biologists can look at it and say, okay, yeah, this is definitely mountain lion. Let's put it up. And then you can go on that site and they have an interactive map. You can click on every little dot and it'll pu- pull up a photo or it'll pull up a, a, a track, you know, and that sort of thing. So they're using that data to try and help triangulate where these things might be and where they're heavily seen. And a lot of times they're seen in people's backyards a lot more than the middle of a, you know, a 500,000 acre national preserve because there's more cats and stuff to munch on in people's backyards. So that, but that, my point in that is that, you know, for example, we found a mountain lion track out there in the big Cypress preserve and it was amazing to find it, you know, as somebody into that topic and I'm able to then send it to the Florida Wildlife Commission. They put it on their website and it's now part of that data pool and we can, we can extrapolate from that. So if you can use that with the Bigfoot topic. I mean, you can start maybe seeing patterns in certain areas of the mountains. Are there sightings that are happening in higher elevations in the summertime where maybe elk or deer or other animals are moving into higher elevations as opposed to the winter? Are they falling food sources? That sort of thing. I mean, you know, that way we're not just grasping at straws here. We're trying to at least use uh, – because so, we have so many eyewitness stories. And especially if you if you really, like I said, vet them and get those good ones, you can start mapping it out and then it can assist you. I mean, we use it all the time. We have the app on our I have the app on my phone, the Bigfoot Mapping Project app. And a lot of times before we're heading in the woods, I'll I'll pop it open and I'll click on my location and I, I guarantee you I can open it now and there's probably gonna be tons a, a few sightings in, in this immediate area. That's cool. So that's just, you know, kind of part of it in the what, smoke. What kind of app is that? What is that app It's called? called the Bigfoot Mapping Project okay. or Bigfoot Map on, on the App Store. Gotcha. And, uh, Scott's a really cool dude. He's, he does some, like I said, GIS stuff. And he does a lot of graphics too on his um, Instagram and Facebooks where he'll put up, you know, data comparing between different primates and, you know, kind of mm-hmm. supposed Bigfoot uh, kind of uh, behaviors or, or places they've been seen. You know, obviously uh, most of Bigfoot sightings happen in areas that have a certain amount of precipitation yearly. And what's really interesting is you can take a map of say uh, annual precipitation in the United States and overlay it with alleged Bigfoot sightings and they completely match up. I mean, one of the highest concentrations of sightings, Pacific Northwest, it's that rainforest that goes from basically coastal Alaska down to Northern California and everything in between. Then you've got the Rocky Mountains. You're not getting random sightings in the deserts around Moab, Utah, where it's you know not much great habitat for anything, let alone a hair-covered primate. Then you've got sightings in the south, up and down the Appalachian mountain chains from right around here in the Smokies up to my neck of the woods in northern New England, New Hampshire and Maine. The sightings are basically parallel to those mountains down in Florida, of course, where it's a tropical, semi-tropical environment. The kind of places that are conducive to life and lots of other species, that's where the sightings are happening. They're not happening in cornfields in Iowa for the most part. There's a few, 
but <laughs> not as many as, you know, the Rocky Mountains or elsewhere. Is there, is there an area, speaking of locations of these sightings with Bigfoot, uh, is there an area that ever caught you by surprise? You're like, because, I mean, you, you have to have opinions on certain spots and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, is there an area, and you just mentioned about vetting stories and stuff like that. So was, is there an area that you heard a story and an experience that somebody had that you're like, this, I really believe this happened and I'm really surprised it happened here. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think just in general, Ohio, which I feel the same way. Yeah, it's it's and, and it's so rich in the history of, yes, of Bigfoot states. It I'm really like, is. Why? It's like one. It's one of the only states outside of Florida and the Pacific Northwest, which traditionally and you know, even even now, I talk to people who say, "Oh, well, Bigfoot is in the PNW, right? He's not anywhere else." Ohio is one of those only states in the East and the Midwest that really broke that mold. And I always kind of wondered that, but having spent time there and um, Seth and those guys have had stuff happen. Seth had a possible sighting out in Ohio and uh, Minerva, which has this really mm. very interesting Bigfoot story. Yeah. And it's just, it's ongoing. And once you kind of start studying Ohio and that Eastern part of Ohio, that's actually the foothills of the Appalachians. That's where majority of sightings come from. It kind of actually makes sense. But initially I remember years ago hearing about it and I just thought, why Ohio? I mean, it's such a kind of boring state in my view, but they have a lot of these old growth forests in that eastern part of the state, tons of deer, coyotes. I mean, I've never seen more coyote and deer than spending a couple of days in Minerva in the woods. I, I was in a tree stand at one point at night with a thermal unit just while the other teams were elsewhere, you know, at this cabin where there's been some possible activity. And all of a sudden I start seeing you know, five, six blips on the, on the floor. I'm like, oh, what is this? A bunch of coyotes surrounded me. I never even heard them they were that yeah. quiet. They came right up to me and I'm just sitting there in the tree stand. I, if I had not had the thermal, I wouldn't have known they were there. And they're and coming for you? They were just checking me out. They're like, what, what is this human doing in the tree? You know, and wow. I'm just, I'm 20 feet up in the tree. So I'm like, they can't, coyotes can't climb. If it was a black bear. That we know start. of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe some weird non-coyote coyotes, but, uh, you know, the, the flesh and blood coyotes. But um, yeah, so Ohio is one of those places that, and, and some of the sightings we got told about just even close to there, I got to do like a recreation, kind of like finding Bigfoot style, where I went out into the field where this lady had seen this creature, you know, she was used to seeing deer in this kind of soybean field they had out there, big window out of her house. And it was, uh, you know, a winter day and essentially saw this thing that shot with a, a deer, but it was kind of dark in color and it stood up and she could just feel it gazing at her. And then it took off into the woods and I got to go out there and stand out there and recreate it. And I just thought, man, this is a weird place to be. But as soon as I ran from that, that soybean field into the woods, the woods just yeah, I mean, you could traverse through there. Nobody would know you were there. Wow. There's almost little corridors of travel. And Pennsylvania has a lot of woods and a lot of sightings. Mm -hmm. And then West Virginia, a ton of sightings. I mean, West Virginia is the third most forested state in the U.S. Is that right? After New Hampshire and Maine, which are number one and two. Uh, so just by percentage of forest. So mm -hmm. the West Virginia is a perfect envir environment. Going into Ohio, what you also have is you have human uh, farms, lots of population, people living rural lifestyles, but they have livestock and other food sources that might be of interest to something maybe passing through. I mean, if we've even heard of stories of people saying, well, they come through every August and that's when we'll see corn missing or that's, what we're, that's when things happen. We hear knocks in the woods, but rest of the year, nothing else happens. It's almost like a seasonal thing. So I don't know. It's, it's one of the, Ohio kind of surprises me, but once I started deep diving, it kind of made sense. Mm. 
You know, uh, you talk about the seasonal uh, Bigfoot, and I remember before I was podcasting, I would go out on weekends hiking in the, the Allegheny, or not the Allegheny, um, the Appalachian Mountain, and, uh, you know, I would just do my own thing, you know? So I don't even think I was doing YouTube videos or anything. I was just going out there looking for Bigfoot, you know? Right, just having fun. And uh, I, I, I just, I, I was really surprised by, like, how many sightings were in Pennsylvania and and the people's experiences and and when when you go out there it's just like yeah i could see that it happens out here um you mentioned something just a few minutes ago that i just i totally forget i, I actually had a point of where i was going with that and i totally forget it so it's one of those things that's just gone well pennsylvania makes sense too because essentially you look at population density of pennsylvania it's mm. very lopsided You've got the Pittsburgh area and the Philly area. And in between there, there's a whole lot of nothing. Yeah. Mountains go through there. Pennsylvania, I believe, as a state, has the highest amount of registered hunters in the U.S. There's still some elk population in parts of Pennsylvania. Tons of deer. So there's just a lot of people in the woods you know, that are actually utilizing some of the skills that our ancestors may have used, mm -hmm. you know, being out in the woods and hunting, which is, you know, kind of a, a dying art at this point, or not art, but a dying sort of um, sport. It's becoming an art because it's so rare. It's yes, right, valuable, right, right. But the PA kind of stands out in that sense. So you have a lot of people in the woods. And so that's where we get a lot of encounters from hunters and people that are just out there in the woods foraging, you know, using resources from the land because you have that entire stretch of interior Pennsylvania where there's just nothing. Yeah. There's just little towns and communities and it's been like that for hundreds of years. It has never really changed. Now I remember what you were gonna say, what I was going to say. Uh, so you mentioned about the seasonal thing with the migrating and all that stuff, right? Yeah. I remember when I was going out doing my thing, looking for these things, I had just heard about that. When I heard about that, I was in denial at first. I was like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that I'm out here in March and I'm just like just looking for nothing because it's not in this area at this time of year. I don't want to, I don't want to hear that, you know, right. but that comes back to being honest with yourself. And eventually I had just come to grips and like, all right, there, it makes sense that they would be, you know, migrating and they would be in certain areas at certain times of the year. And, you yeah. know, but that was, a, that was a hard pill for me to swallow on a personal level back in the day, right. you know, but, but I, mean, I think it, it may, again, it makes sense to me once I kind of look into it. And especially if you're looking at, just look at other known species, black bears and black bears obviously hibernate in the winter. Some people have suggested, Oh, do they go into caves? What do they do? Uh, you know, but deer and moose and other elk undulates, they don't hibernate and they're huge animals. I mean, I live in moose country. We're talking animals that get up to a thousand pounds. Jeez. One of the most dangerous animals in North America. I'm not scared about bears when I'm in my neck of the woods. It's the moose you got to worry about because they, they, they are responsible for more attacks than bears annually. Mm -hmm. In Alaska too, they're the most dangerous animal in Alaska, believe it or not. Statistically speaking, um, but uh, you know, you see the, the way they act. They, you know, moose in the winter time will bed in one area. They'll they'll stick to areas that like cedar swamps in New England, which we have extremely cold, brutal, snowy winters. But those cedar swamps are four or five degrees warmer than other patches of the woods or places where there's evergreens. There's more cover. And there almost seems to be you know not necessarily migrational patterns of you know oh. Bigfoot's going from Pennsylvania to Florida, just like all the snowbirds, you know, <laughs> not necessarily like that. It's more, it's more, it makes sense. Like in the Rocky mountains, very specifically in Colorado, uh, being told about, you know, people saying, well, they're up in higher elevations where it's cooler in the summertime. That's where the elk are moving. Mm -hmm. They, there seem to be activity up there. Whereas in the wintertime, a little bit, maybe lower. Cause it's, it's a lot harsher up there in the mountains, more snow. Um, you know, a place like Alaska, coastal Alaska, you know, we were out there at this ridiculous property out there with a long history of activity and it's a temperate rainforest. Essentially, it's pretty consistent there year round. They don't get 
as much snow as interior Alaska does, which gets pummeled, you know? So something that was living in an area like coastal Alaska, and this extends all the way down that Pacific Northwest uh, rainforest, it wouldn't really have to move year round because it has access to both sea food, you know, salmon, all sorts of things from the ocean, as well as terrestrial animals. So it's not as having to move around. Another analogy there is with the brown bears versus grizzly bears. So in Alaska, you have the grizzly bear. Technically, coastal grizzly bears, they call them brown bears. They get on average a little bit bigger than grizzly bears. And the reason they're called brown bears is because they have access to seafood in their diet. So it just makes bigger and stronger animals. Whereas interior Alaska, grizzly bears are a little bit scrappier. They have to fight harder for their meals. They have to chase caribou. They have to do all these sorts of other things. Whereas in a place like the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska, you practically step in the wrong direction and you're stepping on a food source. Mm. That's not the case in other more harsh environments. So you just look at the other adaptations that other creatures have, and it kind of begins to make sense. You know, if Bigfoot is a flesh and blood animal, you'd have to kind of adhere to those sort of biological principles. If there's something weirder going on, portals or whatever, which I'm not at all saying is the case, but I'm down for that. I don't know, but like that, th- then that throws everything out. And then you could hypothetically have Bigfoot showing up in a park in Brooklyn or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but it, that doesn't seem to happen. So, um, I don't know, but I just think looking at, you know, even if there is something weirder going on, there still seems to be reports of people seeing deer being drug out, uh, hogs being carried out, mm-hmm. killed, uh, footprints being left. So there is a physical imprint being left by this creature, whatever it is, it's, it's leaving some sort of a trace of its interacting physically with an environment. So just looking at the way other animals interact with the environment, I think is important to it. And uh, just talking about that food kind of chain and what, what is in there and realizing that us humans, we actually have a huge impact on the food chain. Most of North America is not the way it would have been five, 600 years ago, you know, pre uh, colonization and you know, um, pre, uh, you know, the America, basically, it was completely different, especially with the tribes in the landscape. Those environments have been so radically changed and different species brought in like hogs. Hogs weren't really a thing in North America until they were brought in and all these other creatures. So we've altered the landscapes. So, I mean, uh, an example I bring up is in New England, my own state of New Hampshire now is number two most forested in the country just by the amount of forest. It's ridiculous. We're like 90% forested, 89, 90 woods are everywhere and there's tons of habitat for moose and bear and and deer and porcupines and fox everything well 200 years ago a lot of those areas were clear cut because there was sheep farming going on Mm -hmm. and they just wanted to have pastures and those environments have since grown back well all those large animals like moose and bear that were kicked off that landscape are now coming back so they've returned so could something like sasquatch return to an environment i mean i have a a research area that that I know for a fact 200 years ago was basically clear cut. And you, you walk around the woods up there and you'll just find random stone walls in the middle of the woods. You'll be, okay. you think you're in the most remote spot. Well, there's a stone wall. That used to be a property, property boundary two, two, 300 years ago. And now it's a habitat that supports one of the largest animals in North America, the moose. Wow. So could something like a Sasquatch return to an environment like that if it was conducive enough to support other things? I, 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 don't, I don't see why not we're using that sort of biological premise. So uh, we've changed those landscapes, but at the same time, the way our attitudes have changed towards the wilderness, towards uh, nature, more conservation leaning now at this point, more people are living in cities and being more urban. There's less people living in these areas. So, uh, you know, maybe animals are getting more of a free reign Mm -hmm. as opposed to 200 years ago when there was, you know, mountain men and trappers and a lot more hunting going on. And, you know, a vast majority of the population lived very close to the land, whereas now we're almost completely separate. 
you know, and that's that's actually really interesting that you bring that up and the whole idea of them returning to areas. Uh, what we're seeing right now in our society is that uh, people are being people are being herded into the inner cities, uh, and we like you know we can go down the conspiracy realm of all that stuff, right? But the fact is, um, the powers that be they want you living in the city because there's more control over you there. And so if that is happening, which it is, then people like us living on the outskirts of town and outside of cities, like I have where I live, uh, we're about 25 minutes from where I live right now. And I have cows across the street from me. Uh, Bigfoot would be more, uh, if Bigfoot's coming back into an area, I might have a more of a chance of having it in my area just because there's so many more people now living in the cities. Uh, it's an interesting concept. Now, uh, you... You mentioned about Alaska. You were just there recently, if I if I recall, right? I mean, yeah, and or was, was it your social media showed you were there no, recently and you were there. I was posting after the fact, but yes, we were there basically most of the month of May. Okay. So just a couple months ago. Gotcha. How I mean, like how was that experience? I mean, I'm assuming it was probably your first time there. I had actually been to Alaska once in high school with okay. my family. We did a sort of touristy thing and it was gotcha. it was beautiful. I mean, but I was an angsty teenager. So I mean, sure. you know how much you enjoy those Alaskan girls. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but I I you know, because we were like we were on a train, we did very touristy things. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't really grow up camping or doing that sort of stuff and uh, so now that I have different sort of skills and I can go out in the woods and actually want to be out in the woods and not be freaked out by everything going on. And it was absolutely amazing. It was, I, I consider it kind of a true Alaskan experience. And, uh, we focused on this property that has a long history of very strange activity. And, uh, the property owner, I've been talking to him the past year and just some of the sounds and things that have come out of there and some of the stories, it's, it's a remote property. You basically need to take a our boat ride from the nearest town just to wow. get there. And and you're so isolated. It's the most isolated place I've ever been. And we've been to some of the most remote spots in the lower 48, uh, but they don't, you know, they're very remote. You could easily die out there, but they don't hold a candle to this but just because simply getting there, you have to That's take amazing. a boat ride in some very gnarly mountains wow. um, on coastal Alaska, which is, you know, absolutely just drop dead gorgeous. I mean, everywhere you look, every direction, it's ridiculous. So that was just incredible to be out there. And for a week, we were out there eight, basically eight full days, no cell phone service, nothing. I mean, sat phones are the only things you got to go stand on the boat and hold the phone up just to get even the sat phone reception to work. And uh, just uh, being able to have some strange things that we had occur and you know find a possible handprint on the back of the cabin that was- Was it fresh? We don't know how fresh it was. It was really weird. I happened to find it while coming back in from outside the woods. I was swapping a battery on an audio recorder we had rolling out there. That property seems to have a lot of audio-based interactions and incidents going on. I mean, long howls, uh, sounds of something like almost like a baby crying in the woods. That's Uh, creepy. That's that's creepy. Well, it's very creepy, too, because there's there's stories from southeast Alaska, some of the tribes there in that rainforest area that talk about warning their women to not go into the woods when they hear a baby crying sound. And a lot of those tribes have stories of Sasquatch being cannibal giants or uh, stealing their women and children. And, you know, maybe that's just a classic boogeyman story that every culture tells to keep their kids and, you know, women from venturing out in the woods and getting killed by a grizzly bear. Could be, but maybe one it happened once and that's all it needs to spark into a big sort of incident. So, but, you know, back to the property, like I said, audio, I was coming back from changed the battery and I happened to find this weird looking handprint. But it's one of those things where it's a 50-50 shot. It's either a human being or something 
primate or human-like. It's not a grizzly. It's not a moose rubbing its face against the back of the cabin. It's dermal ridges that are only found in primates. So humans and non-human primates, you know, gorillas and chimps and those sorts of things. So if Sasquatch is, even if it's not a primate, I mean, it's something human-like, mm-hmm. It's it's got to have similar traits. So, you know, I'm not saying at all that this imprint we found is legitimately Sasquatch. It may, but again, it's, yeah, right. That's what you're saying. It's 50 50. It's, it's 50 50. And, you know, in your gut, you want it to be Sasquatch. Oh, of course. Bad. Of course. And I, of course. Yeah, I'm emotionally invested in that piece of evidence. Yeah, so that's yeah. why I, that's why I've passed it off to folks that, um, you know, I, I know can take a look at it and pass it to credential folks that can say, sure. hey, well, this, you know, humans don't have uh, that pattern of the dermals because I believe in gorillas and, and other, you know, larger kind of primates. The, the swirls and the hands go in a different direction. So, mm. like I said, I, we passed How big it. was it? It was, it was about nine inches really? from, from sort of the middle finger to the palm, but you couldn't see a thumb. And it was just this really smudgy, weird, uh, greasy print on the back of the cabin. And it was the only one we could find. It was like a metal, it's like a metal siding basically. And you had these kind of steel girders and the print was, and it was just a really awkward angle. Try and put your hand uh, and I, we tried to replicate it. We couldn't. I mean, with sweaty hands. The only thing I could do was I put lotion on my hand and slapped the side of the cabin, and that that's that then stayed. You could see the impression, but as far as we could tell, it wasn't any of the guys there. So again, fifty fifty shot because it either is somebody, one of the people there, having done something, or something like that. It's it's not like finding up there. There's a lot of moss. You know, we found tons of impressions in the ground. That could have been us a few days ago. That could have been the mountain goat that we saw tracks of, you know, just because that's so ambiguous. It's just a shape in the ground. That Mm -hmm. could be literally anything. could be a bear double stepping its own prints. It's not a perfect crystal clear foot with toes that you can see in the mud. So that, that's what's so different about something like a handprint. There's nothing out there that's supposed to have hands aside from human beings. So was it at a human, normal human level height wise? It was a little weird. It was, it was there's a, essentially a window above where that was, where there's a bunk room where three of us were sleeping. And they've had a really weird incident that happened years ago on that bunk room when they were still finishing the cabin. That was their entrance in before they'd put a staircase in the front. And they had kind of, it was just a hole in the floor. And they'd put plywood on there and like a Yeti cooler on top of it. And something had come in and smashed the bottom of that uh, plywood. And, and the Yeti cooler went flying halfway across the cabin. And they thought it was a bear trying to get in. They all start grabbing shotguns and they say that they heard this thing walk up the hill and it sounded bipedal. Mm. So, I mean, that's one of those things. So, where essentially this is the same room. This is when we're sleeping and there's no more hole in the ground. It's finished now, but the window is right there. And it almost was like somebody was just pressing up against the that back siding of the wall and kind of looking maybe in the window or, or could be looking in the window, but it was a weird height. It was almost eye level. So, they would have had to have been standing on something. Mm. It was just really weird. I mean, we don't know. Like I said, we don't know really what to make of it, but it's just one of those things that it could be or it could not be. Wow. But it's it's so it's just a lot better than finding a you know general impression in the woods. It's undefined or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you do you have any idea when that film's coming out? Yeah. So that one's going to be in probably November. So okay. we have with our Beyond the Trail series. You know, they come out monthly on YouTube. Sometimes we have more than one a month. Um, but Small Town Monsters is going to be releasing an Alaska Bigfoot film. I don't know the title of it yet, but that's going to be coming out in November. So what we like to try to do is when we do, uh, we've done similarly when we were in Washington State with the Olympic Project with kind of the nest sites and all that stuff is we'll put out kind of the, the Bigfoot film through Small Town Monsters and then on the YouTube channel are Beyond the Trail film. So they're kind of companion pieces. You can watch one 
you can watch either one of them and not watch the other one and kind of get what's going on. But if you watch them together, they kind of coincide and and coexist. So uh, that's probably going to be in November. Uh, j- there's just so much. We, it was like eight days of footage. So yeah. we have so much to sort yeah. through and we have totally. audio analysis and we had heard strange things. So there's just so much. It may even be multiple parts. I don't know yet, but um, you know, a lot of our other episodes when we don't have a lot of stuff going on, it's just a lot of us adventuring out in the woods or you know, sightseeing, seeing some of the famous locations in these areas where Bigfoots have been reported, or you know, notable landmarks that might be uh, in regards to diet or you know, the terrain, why this place is important to all the species in the area. But with something like this, there's just a lot to just sit down and analyze, and we're talking to other people, you know, who are kind of helping us sort through some of that. Yeah, it's funny. And I don't know if you've had this experience. I'm sure you have because, you know, I'm a filmmaker now too. So I, <laughs> I've had these experiences. Uh, but like, and maybe it's because I can't keep my mouth shut. So I tend to talk more than I should. And my team, like this last trip that we went out to Utah, they're just like, Tony, shut up. Stop for now. Yeah. Like, like <laughs> they're like, we need you not to give away everything we just did. Right. Wait till we get a little closer. Right. Exactly. And so like, uh, I, I just, uh, I, people I think are accustomed to me divulging information. <laughs> and so people at like, people are literally asking, when's the film coming out? I'm like, I don't know in the fall. You know, like, I'm just trying to be like real short, but then like, I don't know, stop asking me. Cause if they keep asking me, we want to say something. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> whistleblower, I guess. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I, I, well, I'll say, why not? They, what are they going to do? I, listen, I, like I'm the, like the CEO of the company. Like right, you, can't, right. you can't fire me. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm actually, um, I'm actually flying out to Vegas here in the next few weeks to interview a few whistleblowers for this film. Oh, that that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, you said whistleblower, you got me going. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> well, no, I, th- I mean, I think when it comes to that sort of stuff, if we, if let's say we happen to capture some incredible video or thermal video of something we believe is a Sasquatch, uh, we're not going to rush to just post it to YouTube and get torn apart and everyone's going to say it's fake or people are going to cling to it and it's real. Uh, again, with evidence, I would like to pass that on to other people right. first, get opinions because I'm not just going to put out there and say, we got Bigfoot, you know, that sort of thing. So, but uh, when it comes to talking about that sort of stuff, if we were to get some video like that, yeah, I'd like to maybe start talking about it, having a dialogue about it, you know, ask, you know, maybe getting other opinions from folks in the public as well. But uh we try to cover all that stuff in in our films, you know, really in depth. Like if we do get some sort of audio or something, we will show a spectrogram analysis. We'll talk about what some other folks have thought about it. You know, we'll show that analysis, kind of like what I mentioned with the hair sample from Colorado. That was Raccoon. You know, we were able to show screenshots of the actual report written up by the uh, the biologist there that did sort of the analysis and show even those microscopic images that mm-hmm. she compared to uh, – I was going to say kangaroo for some reason. A raccoon. <laughs> Why not? Kangaroo. That would have been crazy. <laughs> Mystery kangaroo. Kangaroo that's, man. That's another topic. But yeah, so I think it's just, um, you know, I, I, I don't have problems talking about this a lot of stuff, but some some of the stuff that we have maybe kind of on the back burner, sure. we just wait till we hear a little bit because a lot of times you make a claim, you know, people jump on it right away and you know the ball gets rolling, that sort of thing. But mm-hmm. I think it's important to at least, and that goes back to kind of my whole mantra of vetting it. And just talking to other people who are not emotionally invested in, you know, what sure I might have I have captured. Obviously, I I really want it to be something, yeah. you know, and, <laughs> but I got to get some some nuanced opinions. So I think that's just that's me trying to be as responsible, I guess, as I can be with this topic. So with the classic uh, Bigfoot hunting 
stuff. Uh, have you ever gotten a print out there? I mean, cause like people like, it's so funny because I don't know if there's been a transition in the, in the Bigfoot. We were talking about this earlier. I hate, I don't want to call it a community. Let's just call it an industry, right? I don't know what to call it, but it, there's no unity community. And yeah. at the end of the day, I don't freaking care about the Bigfoot community. I don't yeah. like, like, like there's communities within that. Yeah. I mean, there's like, clicks, whatever what, people hang like, out. The way I'm like, I'm like, listen, I'm cool with whoever's cool with me. Same. I don't need a, a, the, to identify with a Bigfoot community, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but along those lines, um, it's gone. I just, I forgot what I was saying. I, what, what, what were we just oh, talking man. about? It's late at night. I, it's 1030 it's, at night. I started out with something with Bigfoot community. Oh, the, 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 the prints, the prints. Prince, yeah. So, uh, I've noticed since I've been doing all this stuff, it seems like it's becoming more prevalent that uh, people are, um, they're saying things like, oh, who cares? It's a print, you know, like, oh, big deal. It's a print. Those are a dime a dozen. Do you feel like they're a dime a dozen? Because I don't know. Like, I don't think they're a dime a dozen. No, no. I think, and again, it's, if it's part of your personal experience, something you had happen, that's really cool. Like we found a, a, actually, I didn't find it. Two of my buddies who had both had encounters in New Hampshire and they were actually taking each other to their respective encounter locations. They happened to go to one of the guys, um, Evan's encounter, and they found this these prints on one side of the road. There was one print on the other side going up a hill in the sand that they had used for, um, you know, kind of sanding the roads because of the snow. There was this like really weird print, almost like toes in there. And it was like a one, two right next to each other. I went up and helped them cast it, but I mean, that was really cool. It was a cool experience because, I mean, was it a Bigfoot track? We don't know that for sure. Um, possibly. Uh, it, it's not 100%, but it happened in an area where there was an encounter. There's been other sightings in that immediate area. It was right as the spring thaw was coming in and all the animals are moving around, including the deer. Uh, so it was pretty cool. It was it was very cool to me. And in and, and the Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Conference you know, presentation, I'll talk about that too. That's one of these experiences. You know, is it definitive proof of Bigfoot? No, but it's something that, again, happened to me that, you know, I was able to be a part of. And that's cool. But yeah, I do hear that. Oh, it's just a footprint. And I mean, I don't. I don't disagree because I think there are so many footprints out there, mm -hmm. but you talk to somebody like Dr. Jeff Meldrum or Cliff Barrickman or somebody else that has, you know, kind of focuses more on footprints. Yeah. That's like really, you know, obviously Jeff Meldrum has an extensive collection. This is gig. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> my buddies were just over there in his uh, office in um, Idaho, just literally, I think today or yesterday, I was talking to him about it and they said they learned one of the got one of the buddies is an MRI tech and he's talking about anatomy and Jeff, you know, basically gave him a, a college level lesson about anatomy relating to the foot and how the the footprints that they have found you know the, the alleged sasquatch prints that he has it seems to be the weight distribution would mean that the achilles tendon is in a different spot than it is on human beings mm. and it got on this really like very interesting kind of academic discussion basically and that's you know so if it was if that footprint was worthless do you think jeff meldrum would be even considering maybe a hypothesis about Achilles tendon or a yeah. tarsal break or something. So there's still information to be gleaned from that. Uh, hair samples, vocals, a lot of people throw that out because, I mean, yeah, unfortunately, what most people will need is either a dead Bigfoot or you know, something like the Patterson-Gimlin film that they're able to confirm on the spot, essentially. And will that ever happen? I don't know. I mean, that's the tricky part. But I think those of us in the Bigfoot community and maybe scientists that are more kind of open-minded can look at all that other trace evidence including the anecdotal stuff, using stuff like the Bigfoot Mapping Project or other, you know, kind of kind of aggregation 
of uh, data sites, combining that with possible strange hair samples, audio, and those sorts of things, and, and painting a picture saying, well, there's something going on. I mean, not every single one of these things is a misidentification or a fake or something. Like, there is, even if there's a small percentage, that means there's something going on. Mm-hmm. Will we get to the bottom of it? I mean, I don't know. People have been probably asking the same question since the late 1950s when Bigfoot kind of blew up on the scene and that term became popular. So, yeah, it's 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 a very tricky, I think, uh, subject. But I think people, once they start looking at maybe the body of evidence, even if you can deduce and take out a bunch of it as bunk, there still is something to work with. Yeah. You mentioned about Meldrum and, and uh, coming to a conclusion with the displacement of the Achilles tendon. Uh I'm just sitting here thinking, I wonder what, like, I wonder how that kind of came about. Like, like just, I'm just imagining Meldrum because we, we're all familiar with Meldrum uh, on TV and stuff and his posture and how he is very professional. Yep. And I, I just wonder if like, it was a sudden impact kind of thing, like, holy crap, you know, or right. was it a slow progression where he's just like, you know, I'm thinking this might be, and then he's like driving down the highway, think about more. And he's like, I think I might be right on something here. Yeah, I, I think, and this is, this could be me misremembering it, but I do believe he said that one of his first times actually being taken out to the field for alleged prints was he was kind of going out there with the attitude of, oh, this is silly. It's like looking for Santa Claus. I'll mm-hmm. just be able to disprove this immediately. And that was kind of his his uh, idea was, oh, I'm going to be able to disprove this, you know, whatever. And he actually went out from it saying, well, this thing showed locomotion that, you know, a guy in fake feet wouldn't be able to do. It's, mm-hmm. It showed something slipping and gripping and, and, you know, using its body to move through the environment as difficult of an environment as it is. So that that's pretty intriguing. I mean, you get yeah. some somebody like that that's able to look at that and – um yeah, I mean he's he's one of the best people I think on the topic in terms of that specialty, you know, in terms of footprints. Which is a and huge specialty. Football. Yeah, of course, and it's very interesting. But uh, there's a lot of other folks in the community that come from different backgrounds. And again, I'm, I'm using the word community lightly. It's just mm-hmm. you know the Bigfoot world, whatever. Um, bring different skills. Like I, you know, I'm not an academic or anything like that. That's why when I, if I do get something allegedly Bigfoot, like I like to pass it on to other folks that maybe, well, this person might have a police background. So that means they have some forensic background. This person is a biologist. So let's talk to them. And there, believe it or not, there is actually a, a lot of people kind of in the background that are in sort of more academic or professional positions that aren't just, you know, filmmakers that run around the woods like myself, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that uh, they, they are kind of Bigfoot adjacent, you know, they're not willing to be public about the topic because of the ridicule and the kind of weight it carries, um, mm-hmm. but they are willing to give you their opinions and talk through kind of uh, back channels about, well, hey, this this might be kind of intriguing. You should maybe have this tested or whatever. So I think that, and from what I've heard from Meldrum as well, there's more of that. He says that there's a lot of up and coming kind of anthropology students that are kind of secretly Bigfoot fans mm-hmm. and you know, maybe something will change. I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, once we get, you get down the kind of the conspiracy route, it's, it's, it's a whole different story, but I think, um, the more, you know, evidence we can continue to gather, the better, hopefully. And hopefully that includes videos, stuff like thermals and things that are really indisputable. I mean, yeah. uh, the Patterson Giblin film is, I, I kind of feel it's almost a moot point, you know, this time in, in history, because it's just been mulled over so many times. It's been looked at uh, you know, nothing more than the Zapruder film, the JFK assassination is probably the only thing that's been more analyzed than the, the PG film, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I don't know what else we can really gain from it. And there is a lot of interesting stuff there. But, mm-hmm. you know, you could see both skeptics and believers can see things that sway them one way or another. It's kind of like you see what's in the eye of the beholder. You know, that's, yeah. that's kind of what they want to see. What, 
with the interpreting uh, with the patty film it's been around for so long and so heavily scrutinized that we have now like these conspiracy theories about it yeah you know and just like and and like i'm okay with the people who are saying things like and i'm okay with anybody really because i don't really give a crap what you say like it doesn't (laughs) doesn't hurt my feelings either way just like i mean i say things on the show that apparently hurts people's feelings like i does if that's not a two-way street there like (laughs) it is what it is but um the people will you know, they'll say things like, you know, Patty had a baby that she was carrying. Okay, you know, maybe, you know, it, it's it's old footage. They cleared yeah. it up pretty good, but maybe, and you can see certain things, whatever, whatever. I mean, yeah. it, but like, then they're like, and then you see the 10 or 15 Bigfoot in the background hiding in the trees. I'm just like... The circles. Yeah. The paradox. Yeah. The yeah. yeah. kind of lost me a little bit on some of that. And that's, I think, like, you know, in terms of upping our game, we need to you know, get rid of that. Cause there's so many, you know, you see, I, I get this all the time, actually multiple times uh, from, you know, like a particular episode that we put on YouTube, somebody will message me and say, wow, congrats on capturing Bigfoot. And they'll circle like a bush right behind me. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I mean, you know, how do I say this nicely? I, I, yeah. I you know, that happens a lot. You see a lot of TV shows, people say, wow, you didn't see the Bigfoot back there. Well, it's probably a crew member, you know, kind of ducking for cover <laughs> or what, whatever the case may be. It's, it happens a lot. And I think, I think that's that sort of wishful thinking, Bigfoot on the brain. Yeah. That's, that's part of it too out in the woods. And you mentioned earlier, you know, how we're kind of being herded towards urban, more uh, lifestyles where we're kind of dependent on a system, right? Uh, we don't have, we've lost a lot of those natural skills that, you know, even a hundred years ago, we're kind of taken for granted. Mm-hmm. You know how to go out in the, the field and, you know, take care of livestock and all that sort of stuff. A lot of that has kind of dissipated. You know, we are very reliant on, uh, you know, this kind of urban system we're now in. So people go out in the woods and they'll find a structure that clearly, I mean, there's some weird structures out there. I've seen some crazy pictures, but I see so many of them that get posted that are clearly like debris shelters or the leftovers of a lean-to. I used to do stuff like that when we did bushcrafting, you know. We would build the stuff and two years later, if you didn't take it down, it would kind of start deteriorating and somebody could maybe see it and say, oh, there's Sasquatch. I mean, I even had mm-hmm. people uh, tell me they found Sasquatch structures in like a popular state park where I can literally go on a website and sign up for a bushcrafting class and do it in that very park. Oh, wow. And, there's, and I and I tell them this and they're like, no, no, it's, it couldn't have been people there. I'm like – People, people get into some locations, people get in some very remote places. So, you know what I mean? Like, I think we just need to up our game a little bit in terms of, you know, talking about that. And I get people are excited, but I think a lot of the loss of skills of just being out in the woods, you know, hearing a barred owl for the first time, Mm. very primate-like, you know, Mm -hmm. they can do whoop sounds like whoop, all that kind of stuff. You know, being able to kind of learn a little bit about that, um, because even, you know, some of these guys that have been studying Bigfoot for decades, you know, they'll say, well, maybe out of all the stuff we've had happen over the years, maybe only a dozen or so are possibly legitimately connected with Bigfoot, whether it's audio or encounters and that sort of stuff. And the more we can weed out, the more we can, you know, be able to put into that legitimate pile. And I think just adding on obvious bushcraft structures and that sort of stuff into it kind of muddies the waters. And I think from the outside allows people to say, well, it's like, it's all, I'll make believe when there's some really legitimate things. And I think it's a disservice too to eyewitnesses that have had, as we talked about earlier, traumatic experiences mm-hmm. that maybe they don't want to go hunting for years after having something that they've been told their entire lives is, is, is like Santa Claus. It's a joke. Yeah. And this thing is staring them down when they're in a vulnerable position in the woods and how they deal with that going forward. So yeah, it's, it, it's, you know, once you kind of get it, you go down the Bigfoot rabbit hole, there's a lot of routes you can take. And some people like to focus on footprints. Some people like to do the audio. Others 
you know, really focus on using the new technology, using drones, using this, using that. Some people are, oh, we got to do it the, the way the old guys did it, you know, how Roger and Bob Gimlin would have done it, whatever, all that kind of stuff. So there's, there's just a lot Get of- their camera start there. <laughs> you know, we've thought, I, I've thought about doing this and hopefully no one jacks my idea now, but just going out in the woods, no modern tech at all, and just taking, you know, like an old style camera like they would have had, but then how do you make a video about that? It's, it's tricky. I mean, it's like a silent film. Yeah. I'll have to add narration into it, but um, yeah, That'd so be interesting. It would be that's that's something that's something I've kind of thought about and yeah. seeing if maybe I mean because people like to talk about with trail cameras maybe these things sense electromagnetic or they can see you know I, I have footage of deer literally looking right into my trail camera as it's going off. There's the IR that they can mm-hmm. detect. Maybe these things might be able to. So cutting down on all that modern technology, maybe that might up your chance. I mean, horseback using that to cover your scent. There's a lot of ideas, a lot of things that have worked, a lot of people, you know, we kind of throw different stuff up against the wall and see what sticks. And if it doesn't, I mean, a lot of it is luck of the draw. I think that's, again, going back to the vast majority of eyewitnesses, it's totally random. They were camping and something's throwing rocks at them. They were hiking and it crossed the trail, it crossed the road in front of them. They were not asking for that to happen. Yeah. So what if we're in a situation like that, but we we are ready, we have cameras, we are ready to go. It, you have a Bigfoot and a person in the right place at the right time. 99% of people in that situation are not prepared for it. Well, what if you are? That's that's what we hope, at least. That's kind of Enter one of our you. goals. <laughs> that's what we try to do, at least. You know, Get in those positions and hope something happens. Yeah, so uh, on the idea of something happening and all that stuff, uh, have you ever had a sighting or are you like me where you're really interested in, you're on the hunt for, but you just, you're going to be honest and you never saw anything? Yeah, I've never seen anything Sasquatch related. I mean, I've seen things being thrown from the woods. Okay. Rock looking things coming mm-hmm. from an area. We were camping in Vermont. I don't know what was causing it, but something hurled eight different objects towards our tent. You know, we didn't have a rain fly on and we could see them coming in an arch pattern essentially from the woods. Wow. After hearing wood knocks that morning and putting up pheromone chips and, you know, I'm not going to allude to what it could have been, but it was, it was weird. That's the, in terms of visuals, but we've heard, I've heard wood knocks, you know, a lot, some of the stuff is, is obviously natural, but once you, once you've experienced a wood knock that it's just so hard to explain conventionally, mm-hmm. you either got a person in the middle of nowhere in the woods, six miles up a, a mountain range that's, you're above the 10,000 foot level, like we had happen in Utah, where every time you turn your lights on, something takes a tree and smashes it against another tree. I mean, I don't know what, you know, it's like you you kind of start exhausting the possibilities. Yeah. You know, I still can't say 100% that was a Sasquatch, but I, I don't know what else would be doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. if a moose bashing its head against a tree every time we turn the lights on and maybe, I don't know if that's a behavior they would really exhibit, but the, the things that are seemingly coordinated too and uh, just the, the weirdness. So nothing, nothing visual, but definitely we've had some, I kind of put in a pile that I have of interesting encounters that we that i'm happy to discuss and you know openly admit you know they were obviously they're not proof of sasquatch or anything i don't know what they were but they were weird they're interesting you put it in that pile and you can disseminate it and kind of talk about it and you know unless you're able to find some other uh evidence that you might be able to follow up with it's just kind of a story and that's what most Mm. bigfoot stuff is it's just stories and most people are not in that position to even be kind of gathering evidence there like because i said they're just so randomly happening just Oh, I happen to see a Bigfoot. 
Well, uh, before I let you go, because I know you got to drive still like an hour to get to uh, the guys. Yeah, Yeah, uh, I'll I'll be meeting up with you guys this weekend for sure. Uh, I want this is kind of a little off topic, but not in the sense that we can still stay on topic. Um, Hollow Earth. Now you've been, uh, and we could go so many different ways that we could do a three-hour conversation, but we're up against time-wise. But you you haven't seen Bigfoot. You're on the lookout for Bigfoot. You're hunting for Bigfoot. Have you thought about those ideas of maybe some kind of like hollow earth theory combined with Bigfoot and that's where he comes from and lives? I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really know what to think about hollow earth. Like I don't, I'm not huge into geology, so I don't know a whole lot about. There you go, thinking with the you know. The intellect again. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I let try- your imagination <laughs> take you away, man. Well, well, for example, like we were in West Virginia, um, just the end of last month in June, and uh, we went to some of these caves, right? And there's a lot of them that are commercially run, you know, where they put up red lights against the stalagmites, mm-hmm. and it's cool, like it's great. You take your family, but you know, for us, it was like, okay, this is this is beautiful. I'm don't get me wrong, but I want to do this on my own. I want to come in here when there's no, there's not screaming children. Um, so we, there's, there's four, over 4,000 documented caves in West Virginia. I mean, all kinds of cave systems throughout the mid to Southern Appalachians. Who knows where some of this stuff goes? Yeah. I mean, miles in there. We found one cave where we could go in and you could just go in and crawl in and it opens up into big rooms. There's an entire underground river going through Jeez. there that we're walking through with muck boots. And it kind of gets you wondering, I mean, could something possibly use these areas to traverse through? I mean- from what I understand, even three days of complete darkness for a human being leads to some um, temporary vision loss. So a couple of weeks, like you have permanent uh, damage to wow. your eyes. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, could something be traveling through there? I don't. I don't. I, I really just like I said. I don't, I just don't know because yeah. you have so much underneath. We see kind of that surface level. It's like the ocean. It's just um, unbelievable how much is down there. Mm-hmm. Most of the world is ocean, right? And there's yeah. just so much there, and most people never even see a fraction of that. How much of that is underneath us too? I mean, is there, there's obviously all kinds of crazy stories about, you know, cults and, you know, strange things going on in these old mines and caves and weird creatures. And that's getting more off into like, uh, you know, kind of supernatural sort of stuff or, or uh, mole people, whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I love it all. Yeah. It's, I love it, it all. Oh, it is so, it is so <laughs> interesting. And that's why I love being, you know, in this part of Appalachia yeah. and to like West Virginia, you have a lot more caves than in my neck of the woods, the Northern Appalachians where it's a lot more granite. We don't have the karst deposits. So most of the caves we have, if you can call them that, are like rock overhangs that kind of create a little tiny cave. It's not like mammoth caves or something mm. in Kentucky or these crazy things that you see all around in these yeah. parts of the woods. So did you know that Tennessee is the state that has the most caves in the union? Yeah. Which is crazy because mammoth it. cave is, is monstrous. Huge. But Doesn't it go up to New York? I, I, think I heard it goes, it can stretch all up there. Maybe. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I maybe these things are all connected. That That's when you kind of get into it. I mean, hollow earth, baby. The, like, they, there's, there's a real like tangible logical conclusion there where it's like do you believe in hollow earth no uh, well do you believe in caves yeah do they stretch for a long ways yeah so could one say that underneath the surface we stand it's hollow there may be I yeah there may so. be like gigantic <laughs> caves i mean they, like, they, i'm not saying i believe that like you you enter in through some doorway and it just opens yeah. up in this like giant other hollow 
Maybe it does. Like in Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> right. You know, they had that whole world yeah, underneath yeah, yeah. there, like where those dinosaurs still living. And, 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 you know, they did just find that uh, that forest underground in China. Thailand, those caves it's are amazing. Like, they have man. entire ecosystems inside yeah. the caves. And that's just what we're like be able, ap- able to get into. But yeah. so many of these caves, that, I mean, we're talking openings that are not bigger than a person's head. Trying, and Who knows? You, you may get down there and that may open up. I mean, maybe... You'd be able to explore that with little micro drones in the future or something. That'd just be amazing. Create so who who really knows? I mean, it opens up into like the land before time or something. Yeah, <laughs> land, yeah. dinosaurs walking journey to the center of the earth. Yeah. yeah, I would love that. That's like all my childhood films yeah, right there, yeah, right there. That man. would be so cool. But yeah, I don't know. Caves to me are really interesting. I get a lot of anxiety when I see those videos of people going through those ones where they're squeezing through. I'm really. Like, I, I, that's like that's crazy. I'm not a claustrophobic person, and I mean, you know we kind of go head first in a lot of these situations. Mm-hmm. But once it starts getting really tight, I'm like, I don't know if I want to go through there. You, I can imagine you that. panic. Yeah. You know, it's it's one of those things. Yeah, stay calm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because spelunking is serious business. You, Those you guys start, are serious. Because I we so I, I've done some stupid things when I was out. I wouldn't do it now, just in the sense that I, I've, I have a family now. I have right. the kids, yeah. and you got to think first. Yeah. Before I had the kids, I was just me and Lindsay. We were married for ten years before we had kids, and I was always like, you know, if I die. Lindsay's going to marry somebody better than me. She'll learn from her mistakes. <laughs> she'll marry a doctor, you know, she, she, but now I have the kids and I don't want to die. But right. like, I know that when I would go into like some of these caves and stuff, it's like you start thinking about things you don't think about normally. Like all of a sudden, like you could be walking on the surface level in that area and not one time do you think, I wonder if there's going to be an earthquake today. You go into the cave and all of a sudden you're thinking oh, about the yeah. earth shifting and crushing your chest with rocks between rocks. And it's just like all these irrational thoughts start going through your head because you're just like, oh my God. And that's the claustrophobia probably. Yeah. I mean, it, but it, it's it's just that confined environment. You're used to being on the surface where you know you have this open space, mm-hmm. whereas down there, Clearly, we're not in charge. I mean, like you said, a rock could fall and dislodge and get you stuck in there, stuck in there, which is terrifying to think about. But being inside a cave in the moment, I mean, we we were walking through this underground river in our muck boots, and it was just so cool seeing these formations on the side and like pyrite, fool's gold, glistening. You know, as you point your headlamp at it, Mm -hmm. really cool environment. Also, it was like really hot outside, humid in the cave. It's like fifty degrees AC, so pretty nice, but. Uh, you you get to a point where you're saying you know do we go do we keep going or do we go back and it's the environments are crazy so mm-hmm. I mean just thinking about you know maybe hiking over a mountain and saying well not even thinking about it there is literally a, a kind of an ecosystem right beneath you that you maybe can't even get to because right. that entrance to that room is blocked off in another cave so there could be all sorts of things going on right underneath us all right this is my last topic here uh, <laughs> so you you you've been doing this for a while. And you've been uh, traveling all over the country. People who say that, you know, no Bigfoot could be out there. We would have found it by now. We've been everywhere. You know, we're so populated here. Tell us, because I know you and I are the same way with this, because I, I, I clearly, or else you wouldn't be looking for Bigfoot. How vast is this country alone? It's ridiculous. People have no idea. It's 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 actually hard to believe at times. I mean... Just the lower 48, some of these places we went into, I mean, just in my own state of New Hampshire, which is a really small state compared to a place like Montana or something. I mean, we can fit 12, 13 times in there. We have places where you could fall off a trail and not be found. I mean, there was a famous case in Maine on the Appalachian Trail. A woman, uh, you know, this was on the show Northwoods Law because it was the largest search in Maine history. She was hiking the Appalachian Trail. 
she got lost. They didn't find her for a few years and they found her body in, in a tent, basically a few thousand feet away from the trail. And she was hopelessly lost. Now she wasn't prepared to be in that environment. She didn't have the basic skills to be able to navigate out of it, but it just goes to show that's not, you know, that environment compare that to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just crazy. I mean, there's just so much vastness and like I said, even in the lower 48, a lot of people like to think there aren't as many remote places. And again, look at a population density map. There's even places in Florida, of all places. I mean, we hike through some of these spots in in the Everglades, you know, where you, you're going out in the middle of nowhere and you're, you've got uh, water moccasins and uh, gators and all sorts of stuff in these environments where, you know, I could fall into a gator pit and not ever be seen again. You know, and that, that's not even going into like some of the weirder side of that. It's just, you know, a simple human mistake falling in and just some of these places, Bluff Creek, Northern California, where the, you know, Patterson-Gimlin film was taken and where those, some of those footprints were found that gave rise to the word Bigfoot. That area to this day is is extreme. It was, it was easier to get to Bluff Creek in the 60s than it is today. Is that right? The roads, I mean, are, are in more disrepair now. Every time mm. people, my buddies were just up there a few weeks ago and they had to wait for a guy to come up with a chainsaw and cut a tree that had fallen blocking off. So you have entire sections of the year where people are just not even getting into these environments. Wow. Free reign. I mean, so Canada, Canada's mm-hmm. crazy. Yeah. If you look at population density in Canada, majority of the population lives basically in the Toronto area and right near the U.S. border, mm-hmm. whether it's Vancouver or Edmonton, all these other places. You've got the rest of it is just nothing. Vastness. I mean, British Columbia, Alberta, up into Alaska, the Yukon. Crazy. There used to be more people in those environments, you know, when those areas were being settled or when there were hunter-gatherer tribes that lived in those environments. But that really doesn't exist anymore. And people are now more herded into cities, as we've talked about a few times. And there's endless wilderness. There really is. And especially with conservation. And yes, there are, you know, forest fires and things decimating forests in certain areas, but there still is a ridiculous amount of space and territories, even in the Smokies here, not far from where we're sitting. I mean, there's places where you could fall off and, yeah. and never be seen, you know, and that's happened. There, there's, there's plenty yeah. of uh, cases of that going on. So I, I was just, I was recently just told that there's a, a plane wreck in the Smokies that they haven't been able to get to because it's just so remote. Yeah. I, I guess back in the day they retreat the body, but the bodies, but it, it just it's overgrown now, and you can't get to it, and and unless you're going to bushwhack to it, and so uh, we you, stick to the trails. That's what we do as humans. Exactly, we don't go off into the direction exactly. where something would want to be hiding. You know? Yes, so it, we try to do that as much as we can, and it's it's just crazy because sometimes even getting a hundred feet off the trail. It's an uphill battle. You're battling, you know, rhododendron bushes, uh, laurels, whatever. It's like, man, this is a, a pain in the butt just to get off of the trail and get into the woods, let yeah. alone a mile from there where you're away from the trail. So mm-hmm. it's it's r- ridiculously vast. And I think uh, the only way to really get an idea for that is to either fly over it and see some of these areas, but more importantly, drive some of these roads, get in there. Like that place in Alaska, I said that we mm. had, took the boat ride to. I wish I could have seen that, man. I mean, it's just visually one of the most crazy places ever. But just knowing that you are basically the only, you and your group of people are the only ones in the area. And there's mm. every sort of terrestrial animal you can imagine from brown bears to moose to black bears, mountain goats, uh, lynx. So we found evidence of all that stuff. Wow. Humpback whales right in the water, orcas, sea lions, seals, everything. So- Truly, we our, our footprint there is so uh, minimal compared to other areas. You know, we are the complete outsider in that environment where the rest of the animals and nature completely controls it. 
Man, uh, I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, well, I'm sure we could be here till two in the morning. Yeah, we'll be like, where'd the time go? Yeah, <laughs> I know Seth is waiting on you because you, you guys got to do, uh, I guess, some equipment exchange. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm heading out into the into the woods, and I don't want to leave. You is know, tonight some... you're going out in the woods. Well, no, I'm going in tomorrow. Okay, hiking gotcha. in tomorrow. I was going to say, you're going out in the middle of the night? No, I'm not that crazy. Like, I'm a little crazy, crap. but that's, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it tomorrow in the morning, and I'm doing solo out there, which I'm excited for. Uh, and I haven't been in the Smokies since high school. I did a survival trip up here. Two weeks, we hiked uh, much of the Smoky Mountains, and I just haven't been here really since then. So wow. it's cool because it's the southern Appalachians, and this area is actually considered also to be Part, partially a temperate rainforest. Yes, I've heard really cool. I didn't know that when I moved here. And then people told me, the locals told me that. And I was like, so I moved to a rainforest. Mind-blowing, right? Great. So, because it's so cool for me because it's it's somewhat similar to what I'm used to, just the Appalachian Mountains, like what I have up north in New Hampshire. But it's so different because we have a lot more pine up there. We have alpine zones that start at 4,000 feet. So, you're up at the 6,000-foot mark and you have no trees. You're wow. completely in alpine zone. Whereas here, like Clingman's Dome... You've got trees all the way up until that 6,000-foot six, mark and even higher. So it's familiar but different. And I love being able to just see the different sections of the Appalachians and how they differ, and how similar they are. Because ultimately, it's the same mountain chain. Mm -hmm. It's just they're just separated by, you know, thousands of miles. It's amazing. Absolutely yep, absolutely. Amazing. I love it, and uh, maybe one of these days we can do this again. Yeah, uh, you got to come out of the woods with us next time. Too. Hey, I, listen, you know? <laughs> if the invitation's there, I'm coming. Absolutely, like, like yeah. uh, I can learn a lot from you guys. So I, I'd definitely be interested in that. Uh, before we get out of here, let people know where they can find you, social media, but also the content. Absolutely. You know, what's the next? Re like I know you said you're doing you do releases on YouTube once a month. What's the next big release that you guys are doing? Is it the one in November with the Alaskan stuff? Just tell everybody everything yeah. you can. We'll have a lot of stuff in. Between. Between them. But yeah, so basically the best way to find out um, about me is my website, Petakov Media. So that's P-E-T-A-K-O-V media.com. And it's got links to all my socials and even uh, all the content. But the other places just go to smalltownmonsters.com and you mm -hmm. can you know watch all the different films we have. And then our YouTube channel, Small Town Monsters, that's where the Beyond the Trail series is. And uh, I think we've got like 16 or 17 episodes at this point. I, I don't know. It's it. They keep adding on. So yeah. essentially we release one to two a month. That's usually kind of what we do. Um, but definitely one of our bigger episodes is going to be the Alaska um, kind of series, which will be coming out in November in conjunction with the Small Town Monsters film about uh, Bigfoot in Alaska as well. Mm -hmm. So it'll be kind of like a companion piece. That one's like a, you know, a VOD and that sort of stuff, Amazon and um, this is more on YouTube, so you can kind of watch them together and yeah, so that's, uh, we're just going to keep getting out there and that's sort of what we do. And that's our MO for the time being and awesome sharing some of these amazing locations with people. Cause we are truly blessed to be able to get out there. Yeah, absolutely. So everybody, you heard it, go check him out on uh, social media and, uh, on his website and just, uh, give him a follow and everything that he's doing. It's really great stuff. The quality is there. And uh, that's something that I'm real big on is quality. And so you guys are doing quality stuff and you're not BSing people, which is great because there's a lot of that out there too. So uh, anyways, man, I appreciate being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. It was an absolute awesome time and I'm sure we could do it <laughs> a lot longer, for but sure. we'll, we'll keep it tame this time. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that's the show, everybody. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please share the show with your friends. I don't care where or how you share the show. Just share the show if you enjoyed it. That's the best thing you can do to help the show grow. Share the show. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. 
Alexander Petikov. You can check out his links in the description below. Connect with him. If you haven't seen his stuff, I don't know what you've been doing. You might have been living under the rock. Alexander Petikov is the Bigfoot hunter. And hopefully, guys, you enjoyed this conversation. Listen, I am working in the studio now downtown. We finally have it renovated, but there's a lot of work to do in here. Got to get some tables and desks. I'm working off a folding, a plastic folding table here in the studio right now. It's still a work in progress, but... I finally have my own space. I can really start getting back into working and stuff since we moved to Tennessee. And I'm excited about that and the opportunity it provides. All right, friends, until next week, stay safe, take care, and remember the truth will set you free. But first, it'll piss you off. Bye. Like a cell, they wanna spin up, but the center of the next is me. Yeah.